this word is for each and every one of you that are in this place. Um, Of all things, this Promises series makes me really excited uh, because I chose to actually speak on a promise of God that is really close to my heart. Um, And that is the promise of protection, the promise of protection that comes under the authority in the name of Jesus. Quite a lighthearted topic. I know it's quite funny watching um, people's facial expressions when they ask me, you know, like, hey, Shemaine, what are you what are you preaching on? And I'm like the the promise of protection under the authority of Christ Jesus. People are like, oh, that's nice. Uh, that's cool. Uh, and so it's, it's, a, it's a lighthearted message, but we're going deep today. So buckle up. Uh, let me pray before we get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much, Lord, for the fact that you've already prepared hearts to be here this morning. We thank you, God, for that worship. We thank you, Lord, for what you are doing in this place. And we just pray, God, that as I speak this morning, Lord, would you empty me of myself and fill me with you, Father God, that you can overflow through this microphone, that they will be your words and not mine, that you will encourage each and every person that you have got here today by no mistake. In Jesus' name, we all say, amen. So funnily enough, uh, what actually spurred this message on, what's put it on my heart recently, it came from a conversation that a group of friends and I had at the end of last month, actually. Uh, this happened to be at 2 a.m. Uh, on a beach, <laughs> nothing, nothing out of the usual, um, 2 a.m. on a beach, and uh, it was after a dinner. We had completely lost track of time, and we were sitting there. But I know what you're thinking, you know, 2 a.m., you're crazy. That's not the most absurd part about this story. The most absurd part was the people who then came to join us for said conversation. There were three teenage boys, a 13-year-old, a 14-year-old, and a 15-year-old. Who in the house is 13, 14, or 15? Anybody? Okay, a couple of you, handful of you, that's cool. Um, So these boys had snuck out of home, okay? They had snuck out of home at two in the morning and made it very, very clear to us all that this was a regular occurrence. That as of recent, they had been sneaking out at 2 a.m., they had been drinking alcohol, they had recently started smoking, and they were happy to tell us all of this stuff. So we just sat there and I just could not get over the irony of them, them bumping into, of all people, a teacher to lecture them about their dumb life choices. I couldn't, I couldn't pass up the ironic opportunity. I was like, do you guys realize how dangerous this is at 13? It's actually illegal. Found that one out. Um, and so I was lecturing them. We were all lecturing them about how funny it was that they were out late, that they shouldn't have been. Um, and it was just a good time. Time passed, um, and what actually completely blew my mind as we got further and further into conversation was that none of these boys had any Christian influences in their worlds, 13, 14, and 15. The 13-year-old, he said that his grandmother growing up, uh, that she was an Anglican. She was a really strong Anglican, which he very quickly followed up with, whatever that means. Uh, And then the 14-year-old said that he didn't know a single Christian in his world, not a friend, not a family member, didn't know a single person in his world that was a Christian. The 15-year-old said that his mum had raised them attending church, uh, but then since then had cut off all of him and his siblings, uh, cut off connection with them all uh, because of, quote unquote, the way she just judges us for how we live our lives. It was really interesting. And so we took this opportunity, time passed, and it was about now an hour deep into theological discussion with teenage boys at 3 a.m. It was as if the three boys that initially came to us swearing every second word (laughs) were completely different people now. 
they were just kids. They were kids trying to figure out who they were in all of the wrong places. They asked a million and one questions and they were quite entertaining questions. They just kept going, hence why we got into such deep discussion. No word of a lie, these were some of the questions that they asked over the span of our conversation. <laughs> why is Jesus always portrayed to be white? <laughs> Wasn't he Middle Eastern? Good point. Uh, how do I live a life that I won't regret when I'm old? One of them actually used the word fulfilled. How do I live a fulfilled life? It was quite interesting. Quite a few of us were like, hey, well, we know where you could come on Sundays. Uh, uh, do Christians have to memorize the entire Bible? Yes. Uh, no. Uh, who wrote it? Who wrote all of those books, right? There's multiple ones of them. Does it really predict the future? We got talking for a little bit and he actually, one of the boys thought that because it predicted the future, there needed to be a chapter for every year. So he goes, are you up to the 2020th chapter? I was like, no. Uh, uh, and then another question was, uh, why were blood sacrifices necessary, right? Why did Jesus have to die if he was innocent? Isn't that unfair on him? Very insightful. But why would he die for me if he doesn't even know me? I'll tell you this, nothing will test your knowledge more than teenage boys whose favorite question is, but why? Right? All the, all the parents and all of the teachers in the room say amen. Um, but the question that actually led me to writing this message that put this on my heart was from the 13-year-old boy. He was quiet for a bit and he was deep in, in thought and then he just pops up out of nowhere and says, so what about... What about demons, though? Like, like, are they real? Do they, do they actually exist, like the ones in the movies? Interesting. It dawned on me in this conversation that these boys genuinely have no clue about the spiritual nature of the world that we live in, right? Um, these kids in particular, they didn't have Bibles. They didn't have Christians in their world that they could go to with their many, many questions. Um, and so... Obviously, they simply then assumed that demons didn't exist because they don't see them crawling and scaling the walls like you do in the movies. Um, I almost felt bad for bursting their innocent little bubbles. Uh, but then I realized very quickly that actually ignorance is not bliss when it comes to spiritual warfare. Ignorance in this case is actually really dangerous. I asked them about their thoughts on the demonic realm. This was an interesting conversation. What I gathered, uh, they said, you know, well, the only place that we really see demon stuff is like in horror movies. That's their only form of education, right, of the demonic. So I said to them, you know, what's your perception of what it's like? And they said, oh, well, you know, like when the priest uh, in the movies, you know, like goes into like an exorcism or whatever, uh, then as soon as they enter the room, all of the crosses just switch upside down. So obviously someone's more powerful. Interesting. And then he said, oh, and then they just kind of sprinkle holy water, uh, but that never really does anything. And then eventually the priest ends up running out, screaming and crying and saying, you know, I can't help you here, good luck, or you're out of my hands, there's nothing I can do. And so they obviously came to the natural assumption that that is actually how the kingdom of God works, that there is someone that is more powerful, more fearful than God. And fair enough, if you don't know any better, you make assumptions like that. 
I asked them, uh, they then asked me, sorry, what I thought about the spiritual realm. And I was waiting for this question. I was like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what I think. Um, and so I explained to them actually that the world that we live in, there's a spiritual and a physical realm that coexist, right? Uh, we are physical beings in a spiritual world, if you will. And we need to get used to talking about this stuff as well. Just because we only see in the physical doesn't mean that there isn't spiritual stuff going on around us. Just like Darcy mentioned in her message a couple weeks ago called By Faith, she mentioned that there are things that we cannot see that we don't question so easily, like Wi-Fi connection, right? You know it happens. You know it's there. Love. Can't speak for that one, but... Uh, uh, love, you know it is real, but you cannot see it. Uh, things like the wind, you can't actually see it, but you know it's there. You see the effects of it. And the Bible is very clear about the fact that the demonic realm here is no exception. That uh, what the movies don't actually portray, though, however, is that there is a name above all other names. That at the, the sound of this name, at the mention of this name, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And that includes the enemy himself and all of the demons. And you better believe we were preaching to these three boys. <laughs> so here we were at 3 a.m. We were explaining of all things the concept that Paul writes about in Philippians chapter two, and you'll see it come up on the screen. Verses nine to 11, you can read along with me. It says, therefore, God elevated him, talking about Jesus, to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, come on, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We explained to them that there is a hierarchy, uh, that demons do exist. They are more powerful than humans alone, uh, and that Satan or the devil is actually the ruler over the demonic realm. Uh, but then we also made sure to mention that Jesus Christ is the name that comes above every spiritual authority known to mankind. We made very clear that this needed to be known in that conversation, that when you say yes to Jesus, there is nothing to fear because He comes to reside in you and therefore you have authority over what He gives you authority in, which is what He has authority over. Um, they asked how we knew that this stuff wasn't just made up. <laughs> Classic. Uh, and then I thought, you know, what more powerful than personal revelation in this sense? So I began to tell them a couple of stories uh, of what our experiences were growing up in my family. Um, the All throughout my teenage years, my siblings and I, we all had, actually all of my family, we've had what we call, uh, what we refer to as entities, um, which you'll probably know quite well as like sleep uh, paralysis, where you can't move, but then uh, like spiritual attacks during sleep paralysis. So we were no stranger to this sort of thing. No biggie. Uh, whenever this happened uh, for us, it was a matter of you would wake up in the middle of the night and as you gain consciousness, you then realize very quickly that you have no control over your body, but you can see, you can hear, and you begin to start to think straight, right? Uh, and so for us, <laughs> the natural thing that you try to do. There's nothing more frustrating than trying to move a body part with all of your might and actually not being able to see any results whatsoever. Um, my brother, he's not a small guy, he's, he's quite big. And so he, um, at one point, tried to struggle for so long to gain uh, power back in his sleep during one of these attacks that he ended up actually punching a hole through his entire bedroom wall. 
Um, and so for us, this was quite funny. The, um, my parents, however, growing up, they always made sure uh, to equip us with what we needed. They said, uh, they taught us from a young age that Jesus is sovereign and that he is always in control. Um, and so we very quickly learned the fact that what you need to do in those positions where you are absolutely helpless is that you need to declare the name of Jesus over your situation. Either that or you need to declare scripture. And that's what we need to talk about this morning. I can tell you this with absolute assurance that every time that then happened and you declare the Lordship of Christ over your situation, the enemy has no choice but to flee. He has no choice but to bow down. And that happened every single time. There is nothing else that you can do when, he, when you're so helpless in a position like that. And so the verse that I clung to that I always declared over my situation was 1 John 4 verse 4. And this will come up on the screen as well. It says, greater is he who is within you than he who is within the world. When you accept Christ into your life, the Bible says that he takes residence in your heart, right? And so in Romans chapter 8 verse 11 like what you just sung in that last song when you said resurrection power runs in my veins too, just like what Darcy was talking about. This Romans 8, 11 says, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. So when you sing those lyrics, it's not just an airy fairy kind of pep talk to get into the sermon. You're actually declaring scripture over yourself. You're declaring Romans 8 verse 11 that that resurrection power is yours and it runs in your veins too. So greater is he who is within you you than he who is within the world. I can tell you um, that there is still very much a battle to be fought. Um, We are still on the winning team, yes, but you are being equipped in the process to fight. Uh, And that is one of the promises as well that comes into this promise of protection that we're about to break down in a second. If you've been in church for a while, you would have heard of the uh, armor of God, most probably. It's found in Ephesians chapter 6, and it describes six figurative elements of armor that equip you for this spiritual battle. Um, This... Uh, The notes for this are all in the Elam app if you want to refer back to them later. But I want to make this a little bit more interactive in a second. I'm going to get you to actually answer for me um, whether or not each of those elements of Scripture uh, of the armor of God are for defense or attack. But quickly for some context, the verse before that that prefaces it goes into um, explain this. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the person sitting next to you, your family member, your colleague, your partner. It is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It then goes on to detail what the armor is made up of. And so what I want you to think about as I go through this piece of scripture, and I actually want you to answer with me, okay? Lean in, answer this as we go through. Each of them, there are six. Um, You're going to say either attack or defense, right? What are these parts used for? So in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 14 to 17, stand firm then with the belt, the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Now in some, depending on how you were raised, the belt could be used for either. But uh, but in this case, obviously, the belt is holding together the armor. So what would it be more, attack or defense? 
defense. Thank you. We're awake this morning. How good. Uh, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Breastplate, attack or defense? Defense as well. Good. Uh, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. This passage is also known as the shoes of peace. So when you put on shoes, attack or defense? Defense as well. Three in the defense corner. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith. Attack defense. Defense. Thank you. Okay, so we've got a a clear pattern showing up in which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation. Attack defense. Defense as well. So we've had defense, 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 and defense. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Swords are attack. There is no, it's no coincidence that five out of six of the elements of the armor of God are actually for our defense. There's only one thing that God actually says, I will equip you to use this in a spiritual battle. And that is the sword of the spirit being the word of God. So when you actually quote scripture in those places, in the dark places in your world where you feel stuck, where you feel tempted, where you feel like you can't wake up and go on another day, quoting scripture is the only thing in that position that you can do to actually break through and shed some light on your situation. This is something that you can't get fit for by training at uh, F45, that you can't pop down the road to Fit60 if you're that way inclined, okay? Uh, It's something that actually, if you are wanting to train yourself in how to spiritual warfare, um, then the thing that you need to do here is you need to actually familiarize yourself with what the Bible says. This particular um, encounter with the three boys on the beach, that actually taught me how important it is to normalize talking about spiritual warfare. They had so many questions and they were so intrigued, they had no idea. Um, Yes, Jesus gives us peace. He gives us comfort and community and direction. And those are all amazing things that he gives us. But let's not forget that he actually calls us to fight. He calls us to fight in the spiritual battle and he equips us to do so. What's beautiful about the gospel books that we're about to break down the instance of in a second uh, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that more often or not, when we see Jesus doing something, he's setting an example for us to follow, right? And so that begs the question then, where can I look if I want to look up how to fight a spiritual battle? And Jesus himself actually shows us very well uh, exactly how to use scripture when faced with the attack of the enemy. I'm about to pick apart this encounter in a second, but for some context, uh, Jesus had just been baptized before he then was sent into the wilderness. He was 30 years old. um, And this is significant, his baptism here, because um, it was the first time that scripture actually says that the heavens opened up, the Holy Spirit descended, and he made very clear to all the witnesses that this is my son with whom I am well pleased. So prior to then, they hadn't known who Jesus was necessarily. He was just growing up and going through the years, and he was known as a rabbi. He was a teacher and a, a scholar in terms of the Word of God. He taught and people listened and he was known for his wisdom, but he wasn't yet known for performing miracles because he was the Messiah. So this passage here, when he got baptized, that was super, super important to note that that was actually the first time that God made it very clear here. He then was sent into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And at the end of that came face to face with Satan and himself. 
Uh, it's important to note here that for those 40 days and 40 nights, he was fasting and praying. And so he would have been extremely, extremely hungry. There were uh, a couple of tactics that the devil came up with, but it's also important to note here that he does not have creative license. Yes, he's been given domain over the earth, but he has not been given creative license that belongs only to the author of creation and that is God himself. So it's important to note here that when you see these tactics that the devil uses on Jesus, these actually will apply to you too because he cannot come up with new tricks, okay? He actually, these things that Jesus combats are all things that that 2,000 odd years later, uh, the enemy is trying to regurgitate to trick you. So we see in these three uh, particular instances, attempt number one, he was targeting his identity. And the tactic that the enemy uses here is trying to instill doubt in Jesus. In Matthew chapter four, verses one to four, you can read along with me. It says, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, then turn these stones, uh, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. There are three parts to break down here really quickly. If you are the son of God. What he's targeting here is his identity. He knows very well, Jesus knows very well that he is secure in being the son of God. That's just been announced to all of the witnesses. And he actually could have defended himself. He could have been like, did you not see that? Did you not see that was, that was me that he was talking about? And he could have answered, but he didn't flounder. He wasn't scared. He didn't feel the need to defend himself. He just said, no, no, for it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The next part here, uh, the devil says, tell these stones to become bread. And it's important here at this point that Jesus hadn't actually started performing miracles as his ministry, right? Nobody knew him as the, the person who had um, raised people from the dead or uh, healed the blind or raised, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, he, they hadn't, he hadn't multiplied fish um, or loaves for people at this point. And so Satan tries to trick him into performing his first miracle here with the wrong intentions. Um, the miracle that he was being pressured into um, also was cunning because after 40 days of no food, of course, the one thing that he would want is what Satan um, targets is that he would want bread. He would want food. So then when he quotes this verse here, man shall not live on bread alone. Uh, this comes from Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse six. And this is actually uh, where the Israelites were led by Moses out of the wilderness towards the promised land that God had for them. The Israelites started uh, at this point to run out of food and God reminded them that I'm sending manna to drop from the heavens that then kept them sustained for their entire journey. So Jesus was actually saying here, even though I may be physically in lack, my provider is who my identity is found in. The score now sits at Jesus, one, the enemy, zero. Uh, and so he moves on to his next strategy. Attempt number two uh, was targeting his understanding. This time, the tactic that the enemy uses is manipulation. You'll see here in verses five to seven. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, then throw yourself down for it is written, 
that he will command his angels concerning you and you will, they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. We are getting heated now. This is a fight because Satan knew very well here that actually he stood firm on what the word of God said. He tried to manipulate scripture by taking it out of context. And of course that came from Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is renowned for being the Psalm of protection. And so in this instance where he's trying to make Jesus jump off the cliff and harm himself, he's actually saying, oh no, no, but it is written, right? that God will save you, that the angels will come to protect you. So just do it, just do it. And so uh, we can see here that he offers this false sense of security in Scripture that's taken out of context. Jesus teaches what is probably the most important lesson out of this entire thing that I would want you to take away. Here he teaches that you need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. He says, but it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. The verse that he references here comes from a story in Exodus where the people of God started to get complacent and that frustrated God because they were pushing him and questioning his integrity. So when Jesus actually used this, this passage in his argument, he's saying, no, no, your twisting of Scripture here isn't going to confuse me. Your twisting of Scripture isn't going to mislead my understanding of the Word of God. The score update now sits at Jesus, two, <laughs> Satan, nil. And then he moves on to his final tactic. Attempt number three here uh, was targeting his inheritance. The final tactic that the enemy uses is the offer of power or status. I always say status. Uh, you'll see here in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 to 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you. Kind of sounds like something out of The Lion King, you know? Everything the light touches is yours. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. And keys, you can come join me now. I think it goes without saying, that's another score to Jesus on the leaderboard uh, and the game is now over. As you can see, Jesus stands firm yet again on the Word of God as His sword and the weapon of spiritual warfare here. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. This passage of the Old Testament came from the Ten Commandments, which you've probably heard of. And so in the Ten Commandments, God made it very clear through these that His people who had been bowing down to idols that they had created and other people's gods, uh, that that was not okay. And Jesus was saying to, here, uh, to them here, needless to say, when the devil comes at you offering status and offering power, this is the scripture that he rebuttals, that he has as his rebuttal to that. When Satan offered Jesus status and power, he was offering that for the kingdoms of the earth. When he knew full well that Jesus's inheritance that he was attacking was actually the inheritance to a far greater kingdom. It was the kingdom of heaven, a far, far greater one. 
Jesus obviously wasn't willing to bow down in this uh, term and condition. He wasn't willing to compromise on what he knew God had called him to do. The other thing that the enemy had tempted Jesus with that was wrapped up in this little clause was that actually, if you think about it, if Jesus would have bowed down in this instance, he knew what was coming. He knew that he was about to walk a journey that was gonna be painful. He knew that what was ahead of him was an excruciating death on a cross and everything in him physically wanted to tap out. This was his opportunity. This was his opportunity here to go, oh, well, actually, I'll still get status. I'll still get kingship over a kingdom but it just won't be the same one. And that's very much what the enemy was attacking here in his inheritance. But as we know for Jesus, that he was called to be the sacrifice once and for all that then reconciled us with the Father in heaven. And so for him, there was no plan B. There was no opt out. There was no tap out opportunity here. Um, The enemy would love church, to continue to attack your identity. He would love to continue to attack your understanding of Scripture. And He would love to continue to attack your inheritance. But because in this very passage, Jesus did not give in to temptation at all, this enabled Him to conquer the devil's schemes, like it said in that passage of Scripture. He lived a sinless life, but then died a sinner's death. The irony of that. He died a sinner's death so that you and I could have access to this promise of protection that He offers you today. He died a sinner's death so that you and I could have access to this perfect love that casts out all fear, that casts out all demons, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess so that you and I could inherit the same kingdom that Jesus actually came to die for in order to offer us. As we finish up this morning, I actually would love uh, to take this opportunity to pray with two groups of people. Um, And out of consideration for the people around you, I'd love if you guys could close your eyes and bow your heads right now. The first group of people is those of you in the room who have started your journey with God and would love to declare the Word of God over yourselves after being reminded this morning of the protection that comes with doing so. I'm about to pray a small portion out of Psalm 91, the Psalm of Protection that I referenced earlier. I really felt like God had put this Psalm on my heart when I was praying about what to say here. If you're wanting to receive this protection that I'm about to claim over you in a second, I'd invite you to lift your hands right now as I speak it over you. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for every person with their hands lifted to you. I thank you for the timely reminder of your promise of protection and the importance of declaring Scripture when we are faced with the attacks of the enemy. I claim what is written in Psalm 91 verses 14 to 16 over each person raising their hands in this room right now in Jesus' name. And as it reads, Psalm 91 verses 14 to 16, God says, I will save those who love me and I will protect those who acknowledge me as their Lord. When they call to me, I will answer them. When they are in trouble, I will be with them. 
I will rescue them and honour them. I will reward them with long life. I will save them. With every eye still closed. The second group of people I would love to pray for are those of you who haven't yet started your journey with God, but maybe you'd like to today. Maybe you've never heard of this authority that I spoke of that God gives us access to through knowing Him personally. Perhaps you want to know the peace, this assurance, the security that He extends to you today. I'm gonna pray a prayer in just a moment. And if you're serious about stepping into brand new life, I invite you to pray this prayer along with me. The Bible says that anyone who is in Christ is made brand new. By praying this prayer today, you will receive forgiveness for your past, a new life right now and an eternity in heaven with Him.